Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too, like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit BetterHelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P. Please take your seats quickly, ladies and gentlemen. Thank you. Hello, ladies and gentlemen. Welcome to The Passing Shot with Joel and Kim, the tennis podcast by fans. On today's episode, backed by our crowdfunders, Tom Bryant and Alexandra McClelland. Igor Sviontek sweeps the competition in Adelaide. David Goffan finds form in Montpellier. And a new Battle of the Brits event is announced, pitting the best of England versus Scotland. Kim, the dust has settled on the Australian Open and we are already back to it back into tour mode four events this week around the world on the the ATP and WTA tours I think we've got we've got clay courts we've got hard courts I think we've also got indoor hard courts from Singapore so I mean there really is no let up at the moment for for the players but of course also for for the passing shot as well I know we've been working hard all week Joe haven't we to (laughs) to bring this episode to everyone Uh, it has been slightly weird for me not to see your face almost every day whilst we're recording because we'll Obviously, we were, we were doing round by rounds at the AO. But um, yeah, we've got four tournaments to discuss uh, this week. We've got four to preview next week. So lots of tennis to talk about. Uh, just a note as well, we are starting to roll out our shout outs for our crowdfunding campaign. So big thanks to Tom and Alexandra, who were very kind backers in our first ever crowdfunder Um You'll be hearing uh, various names over the course of the coming weeks of, of very kind backers. So, yeah, massive thanks to those guys. Um, but, yeah, Joel, I think, you know, we've got so much tennis to talk about. Let's kick off. Let's start. Let's go down under. Let's go back down under because we did have the WTA 500 event out in Adelaide uh, where we had the likes of Ash Barty playing, Iga Sviontek, Belinda Bencic, a whole host of, you know, top names but in the end it was uh Iga Sviontek's week because she came through very comfortably without dropping a single set uh very dominant performance this week from the young Polish player it was really really impressive it was almost French Open-esque I think uh levels of performance from Sviontek I know we know we know how good she is uh we know that she's such a, a prospect for the the WTA tour we know what a personality she is but we got to remember that when you know when it comes down to the business on the tennis court, she can be an absolutely ruthless competitor, and I think she showed it this week. I mean, the the set score lines across the whole week. She didn't drop one set. The most she dropped was four games in in one set. These were her set score lines. I mean, six three, six four, six one, six three, six two, three love retirement against Danielle Collins, and then semi-final against Teichman 6-3, 6-2 and then the finals 6-2, 6-2 against Belinda Bencic I mean it was a real sweep of the competition and the final was no different and even though it was great to see Belinda Bencic in a final because you know it was great to see her back and 
you know, at the business end of of the tournament, she really didn't have an answer to Sviontek's play. And, you know, she hit 22 winners, only six unforced errors. She, you know, <laughs> she is a real handful on, on a hardcore. And I know, you know, we obviously, she lost to Simona Halep, um, you know, at, at, in Melbourne. You know, she won the first set, but lost to Halep. But I mean, apart from that, she really is, she really is such an exciting player for the future. Yeah, this is her first hardcore title, but it's only her second title overall on the WTA Tour. Her first one being a Grand Slam title. So I think also, yeah, her per per match, she her her level of domination, like she dropped four point four games uh, per match on average this tournament at the French Open. It was four per match, so similar level of dominance. Mm. Uh, so she seems to love winning tournaments and absolutely obliterating opponents. What what we'll have to see is whether she you know can can win in a tournament. I guess winning ugly, but so far she doesn't seem to need it because uh, she's quite happy to to you know route her opponents. <laughs> um, but she's going to be going up to a new career high ranking of yeah fifteen in the world tomorrow. So you know, fantastic for Iga Swiatek. You know, she she is definitely the the young player to watch. I suppose. I mean, she's already arrived, hasn't she? She's not like the future she is now, but. I think she is first and foremost the, the the number one of of that kind of age, that cohort um, on the WTA tour. I know. I was kind of thinking about. Oh yeah, I think a lot of people see Sviontek in that category of oh, this is you know one of the futures of of women's tennis. But I think actually we've got to talk about her in the present because it almost feels like you know even you know at such a young age she f- does feel kind of like the you know the real deal and is getting towards I think being more of a a complete package like a Naomi Osaka and particularly I you know just kind of watching the highlights in the final I think her I actually think her ground strokes and her her double-handed backhand particularly I think has improved over you know over the last six months or so and um, you know if she really is going to be a a force to be reckoned with you know on a hard court and you know we spoke about last week and Naomi Osaka's kind of dominance uh, you know in Melbourne being a real threat you know the fact that she's won what four of the last six Grand Slams on a hard court, but you know I would love to see a Sviontek versus Naomi Osaka kind of match up on a hard court because I do think that Sviontek has the we- weapons to to hurt Osaka, and it's great to I think that that could be you know really kind of compelling rivalry I think for the future, not just kind of talking about you know Sviontek versus Simona Halep, but Sviontek versus Naomi Osaka. I think that is going to be. That could even be, I think, a, you know, a Grand Slam final on a hard court in the future because I do think they are both a couple of the, you know, the best players on the women's tour on the hard court at the moment. And they're also quite good friends, I think. So I think it, it, that would be a great rivalry, but I think it would be quite a good-natured rivalry because I think off court they're 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 quite close. But um, so you know, that's that's fantastic. I would love to see Shrontek <laughs> a Starker matchups. Like I'm here for that. Um, but let's let's touch upon some of the other kind of notable results, I suppose. I mean, talking about young players. Coco Goff had a fairly good week. She got to the semi-finals, losing out to Bencic. Um, I mean, Go- Coco Goff, she really did have to fight her way to get to the semi-finals. It was three set matches all the way, but um, you know, a, a good week for Coco. Um, we'll be sort of talking about her a bit later, actually. But um, and, and an- another player as well that had a, a fairly good week. Another American, well, Danielle Collins. She beat Ash Barty in straight sets. Um, she did retire to Shvonta in in the quarters, but. Um, Collins for me, yeah, one of those players that can always pull off a bit of an upset as, as we've seen her do before. Um, I think Ash Barty is, is injured though. She has pulled out of, of the next few tournaments aiming to play Miami. But what do you make of kind of what we saw this week from, from Barty? 
don't think it was good. I think this was, I, yeah, I think a lot of people may sense this is almost kind of her, her last hurrah maybe as uh, in that sort of world number one ranking for now um, because she's not playing at that level yet. And I think, you know, obviously she, you know, was, um, you know, at home um, whilst kind of over lockdown and wasn't prepared to kind of, you know, play on the tour. And I think at the moment she just needs, she just needs match practice. And I know, you know, she's pulled out of Doha due to injury, but I think that she's going to need to be able to put sort of string kind of weeks together in order to get back to, you know, a level that, um, you know, will put her back in that sort of at top five because at the moment I think when she does step onto a court I just don't think she I don't think she's like well playing like a world number one I don't actually think she's playing like a a top five or dare I say kind of top 10 player at the moment and Danielle Collins really um is one of those players you don't want to come up against because she will on she can on her day I think kind of really upset you know the best of the best in the women's game and you know we spoke about the you know the Jessica Begulas and the um you know the Shelby Rogers uh you know of American tennis and they're all kind of getting the most out of their you know their games at the moment and reaching their their potential and and I think Danielle Collins is one of those players that we sort of I think forget a little bit and is I think a little bit underrated but um she on her day really is um a really feisty and aggressive character and and she just had too much for for Ash Barty, I mean, coming through six three six four in their in their match, um, I don't know if if injury was kind of set during the match and and, and hampered Barty a little bit, perhaps. But yeah, I think Barty is going to need to. She's going to need to, I think, address kind of you know how is she going to get match practice now that kind of there are tournaments out there. She's going to obviously have to travel outside Australia, um, but she's going to need to get some sort of rhythm together and. You know, when she's kind of, I think, going to be pulling out of tournaments like Doha um, because of injury, I don't think she's going to play Dubai and she's going to go into Miami, I think, you know, at the end of the month, pretty cold. I just don't think it's going to help her um, in terms of kind of getting back to, you know, where she'll want to be in that, you know, playing tennis that puts her in that top five category. Mm, yeah it's very stop start at the moment and mm. we'll have to see how how she adjusts to that and see how bad this potential you know this possible injury is as well and just just a couple of other things joel from adelaide obviously joe conta another fairly bad week she lost to shelby rogers comfortably so not great for joe obviously she had a disastrous time in australia really uh obviously having had to retire from her first round at the AO. Um, and also, Joel, this is, I thought this was quite um, a funny coincidence because I remember last week, uh, not on the podcast, but we were talking about players with um, meteorological names like Storm, <laughs> Tornado. I think there's yep. a hurricane as well. <laughs> and then uh, Storm Sanders pops up as a qualifier mm. in this event and gets to the uh, quarterfinals and losing to Benchich. So, yeah, she had quite, quite a good week because I, I haven't really seen her on the tour very much. <laughs> no, yeah, no. She came through, uh, you know, Tom Janovich, who gave, remember, she gave Halep that real scare mm. in uh, in Melbourne, came through Tom Janovich one and two. I don't know. I don't know what happened there. But um, yeah, Storm Sanders, really uh, impressive. And as you said, not really, we haven't really heard much of her. And kind of, kind of seeing her come through qualifying, make the quarterfinals was a very, very good effort. I will just say, though, Kim, and I don't know if kind of the listeners may or may not agree with me, but this this tournament was given at a WTA 500 rating. And yes, Ash Barty was there. Belinda Bencic was there. Iga Sviontek was there. But I think we've got to be honest and look at that playing field. I don't think it was a... Hmm. a compa- if you compare that to the, you know, the, you know, next week in, in Doha, 
um, which will also be a 500. And I know that has had players kind of pulling out of the, the entry list, but I don't think this Adelaide tournament was necessarily a 500. So obviously I'm glad that, you know, Sviantec came out with the, you know, to, to win it, but the, the calibre and, and level there was maybe a little bit below kind of what it was labelled as, a, a maybe potentially. You're just trying to find a polite way of saying it was a bit budget, aren't you, Joel? <laughs> <laughs> we know you know you like a bit of budget uh, tennis in your day. Apart from Ash Barty, I mean, there wasn't really a lot. Yeah, you know, I didn't think there was much else there. But it, again, I think it was really great. I think it opened up opportunities for other players, and I think Belinda Benchich, I think, was quite honest, kind of saying going into it, she wasn't really expecting a lot, even going in as the number two seed. But um, it was great to see her reach the final. And I think she'll she'll kind of look back on Adelaide and say she had a really, um, you know, even though she lost the final quite, um, you know, in, in straight sets, I think she'll kind of look back on it and think that it was a, a really positive, um, positive step forward um, for her. Because again, I think she's one of those players that, you know, we've, we've spoken about before, but she's been in a bit of the wilderness, I think, for the last, you know, six or eight months. So it's good to see her coming back as well. Definitely. And uh, we'll be moving on now, Joel, from the 500s to the 250s, because we had three of them uh, on the ATP tour this week. Uh, let's go to Montpellier in France, because we were talking last week about how this event is pretty much always won by a French player. Uh, you know, the <laughs> likes of Monfi or Songa. But lo and behold, we've had uh, a non-French winner, uh, he well, David Goffin has has won. He's Belgian, so he's not not gone too far away from France. But um, yeah, he came through in today's final uh, in three sets against Roberto Bautista Agut, five seven six four six two, um, and that's pretty good for David Goffin because he was on a bit of a, a losing streak, and, and this is actually his first title in about four years or three and a half yeah. four years. So it's ending quite a long long drought for Goffin. I'm really, really pleased for him, to be honest. Um, as you said, I don't think... It actually kind of surprised me when I saw that. He's not won a title, I think, since uh, on the tour since 2017. And, um, you know, to kind of... The way he kind of went through the tournament, um, I think was really impressive. I mean, in the final, I think he was... He was 5-2 down in that first set and clawed it back and then lost it kind of 7-5. And I thought that might have kind of broken him. But, um, you know, all credit to him. He He just kind of... I think really kind of showed some resilience and, you know, showed, I think some of that form that we saw, you know, uh, you know, back in, in 2017, you know, when he was getting to the, you know, I think was the runner up in the, the world tour finals in, mm. in London. And um, yeah, really, really uh, impressive, impressive from him. And I think it'll do his confidence a world of good. I think, you know, he, kind of similar, I think to, you know, some other players like, you know, Joe Conta in, in Australia, I think he had a difficult time of it. I think he had like three, three losses in a row. I think he lost to Popper in, 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 you know, round one, I think in, in Melbourne or in the, in the early stages up match points, very kind of difficult, I think losses that he had. So I think this will do him a, his confidence, a world of good. Yeah. It's, it's, it was nice to see. He's, he's a very likable fellow, mm. isn't he? And, I can't believe he's thir- he's like he's thirty now. I still kind of remember mm. him as like the young, sort of, you know, up and yeah, coming. The player coming, coming onto the scene and playing Federer at the French Open. I still have that image of him in my head, and you know, I guess kind of time flies. But um, yeah, it's uh, it's it's funny now that he's kind of like I'm not going to say he's in veteran status, but he certainly it certainly feels like this is you know a few more titles is probably the in terms of what's achievable. I think that's probably the best he's going to be able to get. It's the best he's going to get. Yeah, sorry, David. 
David, uh, there's only so much you're going to be able to achieve. Joel has Joel has stated. Uh, maybe not 250s. I think he could go, you know, still, he still could do a job at kind of a 500 and, and maybe kind of ma- master's level. But um, yeah, I do think kind of winning this tournament will do his confidence a world of good in, in terms of, you know, putting, I think, putting Australia out of, out of his mind and, and kind of focusing back on the tour. Yeah, no, for sure. And I mean, uh, other players in this event who had an interesting week, Igor Gerasimov, Joel, getting to the semi-final, losing to Goffan in three sets. Now, he is the guy that beat Andy Murray in the first round. What did you make of, of Andy's performance? Because it was a very close first mm. set, wasn't it? And then it quickly went downhill from there. Yeah. I mean, I don't know what other British fans are doing. I was trying to, so I was scrambling to find a stream to watch this match. So I don't think it was on Prime. It wasn't, it wasn't a very accessible match or anything. I literally was on the, uh, I think I was on the, um, uh, the tournament website kind of watching a, a stream of it with French commentators. But um, yeah, it was a very competitive first set. I think it could have gone either way. Obviously, I, I think Mar- Andy will be disappointed he wasn't able to um, to kind of snatch it. But uh, yeah, I think he'll be di- disappointed that he sort of fell away in that second set. I mean, 7661. Um, yeah, I think he was just a bit. Yeah, it was just a bit frustrating. I think that it was so close and he just wasn't able to kind of put it away and, and let Gerasimov sort of run away with it. Yeah, I, I mean, I was looking forward to an Andy Sinner second round and instead <laughs> right. we got Bedanay and Gerasimov. So be careful what you wish they for, guys. We absolutely shut the door on that. We were so <laughs> excited last week. We were like, oh, we could be in for a Murray Sinner uh, second round. But yeah, absolutely. Um, yeah, absolutely not the case. But uh, yeah, French players did not have a good time of it, I don't think, in uh, in Montpellier, which is surprising. As you said, Only I think only three players now uh, that aren't French have, have won this tournament. And I think only... Just looking at the draw, only Umber got to the quarterfinals. So <laughs> completely different, um, completely different, I guess, look and feel to the latter end of this tournament than you know what it was before. And um, yeah, it's just having very different. And I think just kind of quickly on that, I mean, there were obviously a lot of French players there, um, you know, particularly I think at the bottom of the draw. And um, you know, one of those players. Joe Wilfred Songa Kim, you know, we all know his his pedigree and his, you know, previous exploits on a court. You know, going out to quarter six four six two, uh, it was just a bit of a shame. And you feel like Songa and Murray, I feel like, are, you know, if if they look at themselves, I feel like they almost kind of in the same position in terms of, you know, they've they've had these injury setbacks, and you know, they're almost kind of now on a point where they're just kind of appreciating the time on the court. They still think they can kind of go after those former glories. And I, you know, I hope for both of them are able to do that, but it does feel like Songa is almost in this sort of French equivalent of, you know, the Andy Murray situation. Yeah. What, what's resurfacing in French? I, I don't know, but um, <laughs> he's still struggling with uh, injury. I think Songa, mm. he said he's not physically 100%. You know, he hasn't won a match on tour since 2019, which is really sad for a player of his caliber. But, you know, people were asking, I think, you know, why, why are you coming back onto the tour if you're not like physically ready? But, you know, he was making the point that like what with the pandemic and everything, you know, and, and his age and, and what have you. He doesn't want to have to wait for the tour to kind of return to normal before or maybe for his body to return to like the old normal before he kind of gets back onto the court. He just kind of wants to make the most of it, I suppose, probably knowing that he's in him. He's only got another few years anyway. And it's like if he enjoys competing, even though obviously conditions at the moment are far from ideal, 
he's happy to do that and then to, to travel um so be it but obviously we had a very different kind of point of view from from Gilles Simon who you know another French player similar age in this draw lost to Dennis Novak in the first round so also didn't have a very good time of it you know he's come out and said that he's going to take a break uh from the tour because you know traveling and playing in the, in these conditions of the pandemic it's just too draining mentally and so he's he's going to take a break and some time out and i mean it's i mean if that's if you if you can afford to do that and you you want to do that then then do what you ha- have to do for your own you know for your own health like that's that's great that i think he's come out and said that openly yeah it's fascinating i think there are kind of two different uh you know i think there are two different um you know mindsets here and i think particularly with i think the older players on tour you know you've got someone like a songa who is you know he's like aware that you know the time is not on his side and just wants to get back to it and play tournaments regardless of what the setup is you know it might not be perfect but you know i need to make the most of you know the time i've got left whereas on the other side different mindset is i think the you know the simon approach and i feel like you know players that are older who may have families um you know or, or children and you know they don't they don't like this setup and kind of the mentally sort of exhausting nature of it you know they've they've gone through that before and they're not willing to kind of adapt and i guess go through that again because it, you know they just don't see it as as kind of worth it at the moment and i think i think that's the sort of camp that that Gilles simon is is in and the fact that he's kind of come out and said this i think is really kind of admirable and i wonder if i just genuinely wonder if other players will kind of follow suit because you know, you know, when we were kind of doing our, our round by rounds, you know, Djokovic and, and Zverev were very kind of vocal on the fact that, you know, the way the tournaments, the the tours are set up at the moment with all these bubbles, it's not, it's just not helpful to players. And I think mental fatigue will be a thing that um, it might kind of creep up as the tour goes on. And, and, you know, if we still have these bubbles in place and we might get more people, players come up with the sim, sort of a similar, similar view that, that Gilles Simon has had. Yeah, and you can't blame blame him. I mean, I think no. I would be very much the same mindset. I think I don't think I could deal with all the stress and the hassle and and even more uncertainty than you would have, you know, even just by being at home. It's it's uncertain enough. So, absolute fair play to Gilles Simon there and um I wish him well, you know, in his in his break as well. Uh let's just uh touch on the other event that has finished uh this weekend. That's the ATP event in Singapore. Uh, so this is a, a new event, isn't it, Joel? Like this has been put on kind of because of COVID, essentially. Um, and yeah, 250 level. This was won by, well, a first time ATP title winner, Alexi Popperin of Australia. Uh, he came through in three sets uh, against Alexander Bublik. Uh, so quite a lot of three sets uh, finals going on. But um, yeah, first time, first time winner on the tour. Um he was pretty dominant after that first set, I have to say. He dropped it 4-6 and then absolutely annihilated Bublik. Um, his serve was very dominant. I think he he won seven consecutive service games to love uh, from being like down in that first yeah. set. So, yeah, pulled it out of the bag when he needed it uh, today. I mean, an incredible um, achievement from Popper in, uh, you know, real big talent, you know, from Australia. I think, you know, he will, he will, I think, push now into, I think he's out, he was outside the top 100 kind of going into this, but of course he's going to make inroads there. And I think, you know, looking at this week and I think particularly his serve, 
if he can kind of build his game around his, you know, his serve and, and have that sort of working for him, I think he can genuinely push up into, you know, top 50 and, and beyond. But, um, you know, just speaking about his opponent, uh, Alexander Bublik, I mean, he is a, Kim, he is a box of tricks. He's a little bit like a, he's a little bit like a Nick Kyrgios and he does have the, I think the capacity to go kind of on, men- on mental walkabouts. And you always, I feel like you always feel like, no matter how well he's playing, you always have a chance against him. And it, despite kind of taking that first set, he just, yeah, he just sort of, I think, imploded. And, and once he kind of got behind, he wasn't able to kind of get back in. And that's why I think Popperin was able to kind of dominate. I mean, 4-6-6, love 6-2. I feel like, if, I feel like Boblik needs a, a mental coach or a psychologist on his team to get his head straight because I think his talent is there. And, and I think we've seen that. And he needs, I think he needs something else though to make sure that, he can kind of turn his kind of talent into victories and not let these, I think, results kind of happen. But, you know, he's still very young and, you know, he's still learning and there's, I think, a lot more time to to mature on his side. Yeah, I mean, Popperin only dropped six points behind his serve. So very uh, dominant with, with his serving performance uh, in the final. But, I mean, just talking about Bublik, you know, and, and his his abilities on court what we did see from him this week Joel um and I, I knew you were going to bring this up I, I knew I think, you were going to bring this up well I know you love sort of dodgy serves um I, I mean <laughs> is this a dodgy serve I don't know it's the the reserve reserve the reverse <laughs> serve or I think maybe the inside out serve you could call it uh we sort of hit the ball on the inside rather than the outside so you're kind of cutting the wrong way across the ball essentially so it's when it lands, the, the spin is completely different and really throws the the opponent. And we saw Bublik pull this out of the bag. Um, I mean, do you, are you a fan? Because if is it, do you class this as like the underarm serve, which I know you're like really keen on? <laughs> is it is it a good tactic or is it a bit silly? I need to see more of it. I think uh, listeners, if if you don't know what we're talking about, just go on. I think just go on YouTube and type in Bublik reverse serve, and I think you'll you'll be able to see what we mean. I think it came from Taylor Fritz. I think on Instagram, and it's sort of come and, and transcended onto the tour. I think at kind of the obviously at the kind of with lower ranked players. Um, yeah, I'm not I'm not sure at the moment. I feel like I, I don't know if it's a genuine tactic or if it's like a more of a, an exhibition shot. I feel like it's a shot that has a low success rate. And as a result of that, it's going to go in, you know, the more times you try it, it it's inevitably going to go into the net more times and probably make you look a bit silly. But if it does come off, I can I, I can sort of see it working because it does, you know, go away from the opponent and maybe you know particularly on a grass court that could be quite um, effective. But I feel like the 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 execution rate of actually pulling this off is still it's just like it's just really tough. And unless you're unless you're able to do it consistently, I don't I don't feel like it's going to be a a, ge- a genuine tactic people can kind of pull out pull out of the bag when you know when they need it. Yeah, exactly. I think it's quite hard to actually execute and, and get it correct. So if it does go wrong, you just look a bit foolish, don't you? And I think <laughs> the underarm serve is a lot easier to yeah, pull off. Yeah, exactly. So it would be a better strategy. Although for me, I you know, the underarm serve, I'm still, you know, the jury's out. I'm still not convinced. But this serve, the reverse serve, I think, you know, technically it's a lot more difficult. So I'm, I'm much more au fait with this being 
a thing because to me it's it's you know you are expanding your repertoire whereas the underarm serve to me just seems a bit comical but um listeners <laughs> you know, let us know what you think because i think we'll we be seeing more of this on the tour be, be quite interesting to see um but yeah i mean just just a note on on singapore i think you know it was a pretty decent tournament obviously it, it was quite a i don't know the the, the, the top seed was adrian manorino does, does that kind of the point across is what I'm trying I to say. Surprised, I was surprised <laughs> by that actually, but uh, yeah, it was. Um, you know, I think it, it was kind of a new tournament. It was great. I think there, there were fans there, kind of watching highlights of the finals. So that was like that was good to see. And uh, yeah, obviously, you know, it's one of those tournaments where you know it's been set up to give players opportunity but i think particularly the australian players um you yeah know, who don't have to go you know i guess as as far um to play in kind of an atp level event so yeah really i think really good we also have a tournament going on at the moment in cordoba in argentina the final is on uh tonight uk time uh it is albert ramos venolas um and he is going to be facing juan manuel serendolo of argentina uh, a qualifier i had to watch some of his play this evening because i quib i'd never heard of him um he's got a very uh interesting i'd say serve um it definitely needs to be sharpened if he wants to be kind of a regular on the tour i think it kind of works on the clay court but the speed of it i feel like it just you would just not be able to get away with that on a on a hard or, or grass court but um yeah he's doing really well this week got through to the finals some really tough victories but um yeah he's up against Ramos Vinolas who uh, who's just been beating Argentinians all week <laughs> yeah if you look at Ramos Vinolas's draw he's only had Argentinians and then he's got another one in the final and um I think you, you were saying Joel weren't you before we started recording that every time Ramos Vinolas does anything on the court it's just met with absolute yeah. silence and there are fans there but obviously he's uh, up against their home hopes all the time yeah, I, I, again, I was kind of watching some highlights and, uh, it feels like when Ramos Vanolas kind of hits a winner at the quarterback open, you know, he's playing in a bubble and there are no fans there. But when his opponent hits a winner, oh, there's no bubble and all the, all the fans there are cheering. Um, but, uh, yeah, I think if he, if he, obviously if he wins tonight, he'll probably be the most, unpopular man in in Cordoba because of the all the Argentinians he's beaten and and Kim it raises the point for me and listeners uh, you know let us know but I don't know has there ever been a player who has won a tournament just facing uh players from one country and also in you know playing the tournament in that country itself uh it feels that feels quite a rare feat uh to achieve well, yeah, I mean, it does help that there's an awful lot of Argentinians yeah, in this very draw. True. Very, very true. <laughs> but I think I think I've seen it at slams before where like Rafa's played three Americans in a row. But, you know, to have the whole the whole draw is, is quite interesting. And uh, yeah, I think this Juan Manuel Serendolo, uh, you know, he's only 19. This is his first uh, tour event. He'd never played a, a main draw match before. So making waves, you know, I mean, he um, he, he doesn't exactly I was, I was looking back to see what he'd done you know maybe on the challenger circuit kind of coming in was he in great form but he, no. he, he wasn't so i don't know where this has come from i mean but, he, uh, seven and seven was yeah. his win loss record on, on the challengers tour i mean it is really really impressive um i mean he beat um he beat uh Coria in the semi-finals and he's quite a you know wily veteran on, on a clay court but you know Serendola actually looked like the the more experienced player but um yeah really really impressive from him in terms of 
you know, being able to kind of make the final as a 19 year old on debut, that doesn't happen very often. But um, yeah, there's going to be, it's definitely, I think, work to be done if he wants to be able to, um, you know, take his game uh, and be able to kind of replicate it, um, you know, at the tour level on, on other services. He might just kind of fall into that sort of, you know, Londero and other kind of Argentinian players of, you know, just kind of being able to make a living on, I guess, on the, the ATP tour by playing clay events. Um, so that might be the path he goes down. But yeah, really impressive from him so far. Yeah, he's probably thought, I don't need to work on my surf too much. I'm only going to be playing on clay. Uh, you haven't seen it. What? I genuinely watch it. It's one of the slowest second serves I think <laughs> I've I've ever seen or in an, an, on an ATP tour level uh, event. Interestingly, there was also a Francisco Serendolo in the same event who got a wild card. So I don't know if they're related, but uh, there's there's multiple Serendolos flying around. And also, Kim, can can I, I might just be like confused here, but Benoit Pair was the second seed. I don't know why he's playing in South America versus uh, playing in like Montpellier, uh, you know, in his home in France. I don't know if he loves, he prefers kind of the clay courts to the hard courts or he fancied a holiday to, to Argentina, but that felt a bit, that felt for me a bit, bit strange. Yeah. Maybe he just wanted a bit of sunshine or maybe his, <laughs> his best mates on the tour are Argentinian. I yeah, don't know. Uh, yeah. Listeners, any thoughts on that? <laughs> um, but I think we're going to take a quick break now. Um, so do join us in the second half where we'll be looking at all the other news, the new Battle of the Brits event, Miami Open news and all the draws for next week's tournaments. So don't go anywhere. This is The Passing Shot. You are joined by Joel and Kim and uh, we are back for the second half. We're going to start with the return, Joel, of Mysterious Player. How exciting. (laughs) I've missed it. I've missed being wrong. Kim, I've missed being wrong (laughs) so many times. I'm wonderful. Uh, Are you looking forward to being wrong for yet another week? (laughs) (laughs) Um, No, I'm glad it's back. This is one of my fave segments. And uh, actually, I shall give a credit uh, to my brother because I was trying to think who I should do for this week's Mysterious Player. And I said to him, give me the name of a tennis player, like any player. And so this person was the first person that my brother thought of. So, yeah, I know. Uh, So, right. Shall we we crack on, Joel? Uh, Ready to begin? Okay. So, number one, clue number one. I was born in November 1976. Ooh, old old school player. 86, 96, 86, 60. Okay, so they're going to be like 40, 45, 46. So they might be like a coach, maybe. Uh, I'm going to go with Nicholas Kiefer. <laughs> wow. Uh, no, it's not Nicholas Kiefer. <laughs> that was a good shout. That's that was a good, a good shout. First, yeah, first that's okay. Decent. Okay, <laughs> uh, clue number two. I won 11 singles titles and finished uh, runner-up in 11 other singles finals. So won 11 titles, <laughs> lost 11 finals. Yes. <laughs> uh, yeah, that makes sense. <laughs> I hope. Um, okay. Um, David Nalbandian? No, no. Um, they're not, not a bad shout again, yeah. Okay, uh, clue number three. I reached a career-high singles ranking of world number eight. Um, Guillermo Coria. No, no. Um, but you're sort of in the right range, I have to say. Um, 
in terms of the sort of age bracket, I suppose. Uh, okay, Num- uh, clue number four. I reached the finals of two Grand Slam tournaments. The US Open in 98 and Wimbledon in 2003. Oh, Wimbledon 2003. Patrick Rafter? Oh, no, no, no. I thought I was going to give it away then when I said Wimbledon, but um, not quite. Okay, clue number five, I think this is. My greatest achievement was winning two Davis Cup titles in 1999 and 2003, I won the deciding rubber in the final of each. Um, so you know it's a man. Yeah, I'm, I want to say it's not Goran Ivanisevic. Um, I keep thinking about back to that Wimbledon clue. I'm gonna. I think it's wrong. I'm gonna say Michael Krychek. Wasn't it Richard Krychek? Richard Richard <laughs> I think you're getting Michael Steek and Richard Krychek. Yeah, I think up. I probably am. Yeah. Um, it's wrong anyway. It's not Krychek. <laughs> um, okay, this this might help, this next one. Uh, I didn't give you the country of the Davis Cup because I thought that would, that would totally give it away, by the way. Okay. So, right, clue number six. Um, during the height of my career, I was known as having one of the fastest serves in the game. Oh, Okay. Um, fastest serve in the game. Oh, is it um Philippusis? Yes, it is. It is Mark Philippusis. Um, yeah, he had a booming serve, didn't he? But yeah, he lost that twenty oh three Wimbledon Federer. to Federer. Yeah, exactly. Federer's first Wimbledon. I remember that because uh, yeah, I just felt like the only way that he. He was going to be able to hurt Federer was on his serve, and I think I think when I was growing up as a fan, I just remember, you know, I think watching that match and being like, "Man, Federer's return game is like really strong against you know someone like Philippoussis who had like a like Andy Roddick level of sort of speed to his serve." Yeah, definitely. I mean, I did have some other clues which may have also given the game away. Uh, Philippus is starred as The Bachelor in Age of Love, <laughs> which is a reality TV dating show. Um, he also competed in The Masked Singer Australia in 2020 as uh, Echidna, which is one of the characters, I suppose. Uh, but he was the first contestant to be eliminated. So perhaps he's not the, not the best singer. Um, and he went out with Delta Goodrum, who used to be in Neighbours as well. So, yeah, uh, exciting times. Uh, listeners, let us know if you got Mark Philippus's before Joel did or after or not at all. Kim, if you had given me those three clues, they would not have helped me absolutely really? one, one jot. Um, <laughs> so I'm kind of glad I got it when I did. But um, yeah, listeners, let us know how you did. But uh, let's move on, Kim, to another feature of ours that we're going to be bringing back, the Passing Shot Mailbag. Uh, this is our feature where listeners have been getting in touch with us to give us, give Joel and Kim some questions to kind of chew over. And uh, we've got, I said, we've got two questions this week. And... The first question is from uh, Liz, who has got in touch with the show on email. And her question to us was, what are your thoughts about the chances of Andy Murray making the top 100 or top 50 or top 20 in the next year? Oh, in the next year. Mm, Okay. Well, I mean, my initial thoughts on this, Joel, top 100, yes. Yes. Top 50, that would be fantastic. Top 20, impossible. 
Oh, in, okay. In the next year, I mean, I just what we've seen of Andy of late. I'm, I'm not. I don't think. I think top twenty would be going some. Uh, yeah. Top hundred for sure. I think that's that's doable. I think I'm going to go one step further. I'm going to say top hundred, yes. Top fifty, yes. But top twenty, I think is. I think in the like immediate future, I just yeah, it's just not a. Just don't think it's an option unless he's going to do something drastic like win the Miami Open or do something. You know, do do something. I think out like really exceptional. But I think if he can make, I think more steady progress. I think top fifty certainly is attainable. Mm, yeah, I agree. Top top fifty would be a, r- a real you know good achievement. But uh, it, it depends. You know, he's playing like ATP level events now, and and if he's not going to be going beyond the first round, it's it's difficult to see how he's really going to get back up there at all. I think we'll know. We'll we'll know. I think kind of quite soon. Which I think is sort. Of, I think for British fans is almost kind of the sort of the scary thing about it is that I think we'll kind of have perceptions in our head of of how good this Murray comeback will be. You know, the more tournaments he obviously plays, and the you know the, the more opponents he faces, and the quality of opponents he faces. So, um, yeah, it's a bit. I think it's a bit kind of. I think for British kind of tennis fans, it's a bit nervy at the moment in terms of you know Andy Murray fans p- particularly because we, we know he's such a great champion, but at the moment it's yeah, it is wondering. This is sort of a bit of an unknown, isn't it, in terms of <laughs> where his ranking's going to go. And another question, Joel, that we've had on Twitter is from Topspin Lobber. So um, thank you for this. This is a really interesting question. Um, they put put out this. Do you think Coco Goff wins a major by the time she is 21? Uh, I mean, that's a very intriguing question, Joel. I mean, first of all, you know, will she win a major? But B, is she going to do it in, in the next four to five years? I and mean, what, what do you think? Yeah, I mean, this is... I mean, for me, actually, the more interesting question is which major does she win? Because I I personally think that she will win a major by the time she's 21. The fact that she's broken on the, to the tour so early. Um, and, you know, we've seen, we've seen players, you know, from out of nowhere reach uh, finals, uh, Grand Slam finals as first time finalists and win them. We've seen that happen more on the, you know, on the WTA side than the, the ATP side. I'm thinking, you know, players like, Kenin at the Australian Open, Andrescu at the US Open, those sorts of moments. And I think Coco Goff could do something similar. I know she's only, what, 16 at the moment. Um, so I don't think, I think it's still kind of years away. But I, I do think that could happen to her, despite, you know, maybe kind of like a Naomi Osaka sort of being around and, and you know, obviously other top players as well. But um, yeah, I do think that's achievable. And if I was to go one step further in terms of what slam it might be, I, for some reason, I just kind of see it being at Wimbledon. Mm. Um, I just think that I just think hard courts is going to be too many big hitters uh, that are going to like she's going to come unstuck against. But I reckon at Wimbledon, I think maybe she has a better chance. Yeah, it's interesting. I, I agree with you on hard courts. I think there's just too many other players, especially right now, who are, you know are cut above. I personally don't think she will win a slam by the time she's 21. I think it. I think she will win one, but it. I think she will do it a bit older, 23, 24. I just. I'm not sure. I just feel like so much pressure and hype has been put on her at such a young age that that's gonna. I think take 
take some toll. But and I think when it comes to it, that the French Open might actually be where she does it because I just think the French Open we see a lot more maiden slam champions there, and I just feel that actually, you know, yes, it's not her best surface, but a lot of time, you know, the draw opens up and you win your slam, the first slam on on a surface that you maybe didn't think you would. So I think that's that's what I'm going for. But I think yeah, it's it's kind of. There is no dominant women's no. player on a clay court at the moment, isn't there? Well, is I there? would say Halep, but obviously against Sviontek last year, that was, <laughs> exactly, yeah. you know, a uh, very different kettle of fish. But yeah, I think that's one to ruminate over. I'm, I think if Coco Goff has a really good, like, Wimbledon this year, for example, I, I probably would change my mind. If she got to the, like, the quarters or semis, I'd be like, right, no, she's definitely arriving. But yeah, it's it's an, it's a good one. For some reason, I just envisage a sort of a Maria Sharapova sort of eighteen-year-old win at Wimbledon happening to Coco Goff. I don't know. I don't know why. I just kind of sort of see, you know, I see her bursting on the scene in in that sort of way um, as a as a kind of first-time Slam champion. Um, but I mean, I, again, I think this is I think this is years away. I don't think this is anytime anytime soon. But the fact that she's on the tour now. Uh, is only going to help her, I think, you know, get all that experience and, and mature, I think, more rapidly than, you know, some of the players who will have come on at a later, you know, a later stage. Absolutely. And, and keep the keep the mailbag questions coming, guys, because we love to, yeah, get our teeth into these. It's the really good food for thought. Um, let's take a look at the other news from this week, Joel. And the first of which is we had a new Battle of the Brits event that's been announced. Uh, this is going to be taking place in December in uh, Aberdeen, I think, at the P&J Live Arena. So this is the fourth edition of Battle of the Brits. Um, again, Jamie Murray has kind of set it up. He's going to be the tournament director. Uh, this one's going to be slightly different. Um, a, they're hoping to have fans there which would be great if that can happen. It's going to be a two-day event. There's going to be six matches, so that's going to be four singles and two doubles. But they've split it up, so it's going to be Team Scotland against Team England. So I think, obviously, it's a really good way of kind of, I think, obviously, Andy and Jamie playing in front of, you know, home-home fans in Scotland. And and I think the way it's being pitched as well is is, is quite good. It's, it's, a, it's a more novel, you know, way than just them playing each other. They've kind of got a team to play for. Um so, I mean, I was thinking though, apart from the Murrays, who would be on Team Scotland? But I think Cam Norrie would be would be playing because his parents are are Scottish. Is that right? <laughs> yeah, I think if you took the best of Scotland and the best of England, I think it would be something like a Cam Norrie, Andy Murray, Jamie Murray, and maybe Johnny O'Mara. I think could play for Scotland, and then for England, it would be like you know Dan Evans, Kyle Edmund, and then maybe Joe Salisbury and Neil Skupski. Um, and I think the dub, the doubles there would be very, very competitive. I think the singles would be very, very competitive as well. And it would be, I think it would be really fascinating because I generally don't I think genuinely, I think what's so compelling is that is, uh, looking at that, if that happens kind of, uh, you know, in person, um, that feels like a very 50 50, uh, tie that could go one way or the other. And I know it's probably, you know, a, a bit of fun, but, um, yeah, I think it will be, I think those players and, and the fact that it's taking place, you know, just before the start of the tour in, you know, in, in December time, although I think, you know, the fans will see it as something a bit lighthearted. I, I, I do think though, the players will take it seriously because they will be seeing this, I think as a, 
you know, tune up for the, you know, the start of the, the 2021 season. So, um, you know, I, I, it's definitely, uh, it's definitely, uh, I'm really looking forward to it. And, um, yeah, it'll be, it'll be very interesting to see kind of how it plays out. I mean, Kim, let's just, let's just kind of make some terrible predictions now. England versus Scotland. <laughs> in tennis where is where is that going who who wins that in a two-day competition um i'd have to go with dan evans and joe salisbury i'm gonna say england oh okay yeah. i think they're going to be the key the key factors in that victory yeah i'm i'm not gonna i'm not gonna disagree with you i do think i think you've got to go with england there they're not yes they've not got the murray brothers yes it is a an away tie for them i guess in in theory um but uh yeah i feel like you i feel like you'd have to back england um and i think they i think kim i think it's safe to say they'll do a lot better than they did before in the the aberdeen cup which <laughs> i didn't realize was actually a thing until i looked it up on wikipedia after seeing this news but um i think le- the less said about that the better from an <laughs> england point of view well it is interesting if listeners you want to go and have a look at the aberdeen cup from 2005 and 2006 um players yeah i i, I mean i wasn't really following tennis then but david sherwood uh joanna henderson claire sawyer i have to say i've never heard of them um doesn't mean they weren't fine tennis players but unfortunately yeah team scotland actually won both of those cups so i think yeah england have definitely probably got a stronger team (laughs) this time around Um, although when you said you were backing them i thought oh that's a it's a bold move for anyone to back England in a sporting event, but uh, <laughs> we, we'll see how it pans out come December. And, and it would be great if we can actually have fans there. Only thing is, are they going to do a female edition of this or is it just, Ooh, just for the yeah. men? Because it would be nice to have you know, a mm. women's version, although I don't know if we've got many Scots to kind of, you know, I don't know the <laughs> origin of all the female tennis players. Who would they be able to represent if you were doing like a home nations? But we'll have to see um, if something will be scheduled for the women. Um, but let's move on to the other news this week in tennis. And that has come from the Miami Open, which is obviously due to take place. Um, was it later this month? Uh, yeah, end I believe. of the month. Yeah, end yeah. of the month. Well, yes, March. It's February oh, 28th yeah. as we record this, but <laughs> oh, it was almost March. So there we go. Um, and the big news was that the prize money has been drastically cut by almost 80%. Um, you know, just to put this into context, in 2019, uh, the singles champions were paid over a million dollars. And this year, they're only going to be getting $300,000. Uh, I say only, obviously that sounds still like a very large sum of money to, to me. But um, yeah, they've had to massively obviously drop the the total prize prize winning capacity. Um, I guess that their argument is that because, you know, they're only able to have like 20% capacity for fans. And I guess the prize money is, is related to that. Uh, I mean, what did you make of this, Joe? I know it's a very significant drop. But we have to come to expect that, but it is it is quite a, a large drop. It's, you know, eighty percent, pretty much. It's a huge drop uh, for such a you know for such a flagship event as well on on the tour. You know, we always talked about the you know always very really looking forward to kind of the the sunshine double, and you know we're not going to have Indian Wells. You know, well, it would have been I think you know, start of March, but we're not, obviously not having that. Um, we've got the Miami, Miami Open, but uh, yeah, it's it's um, yes. Yeah, like, what do the players think on this? Because you know, I think the lower ranked players in particular. You know, I, I think we've you know we've seen you know up till now that tournaments have kind of readdressed the balance of prize money, and you know there has been more 
kind of taken away from I think kind of the you know the the business end of tournaments, semi-final, finals, whatever, and put into kind of first round losers, second round exits, and um, you know we've seen that I think happen, and I think that's been a positive move that has happened over you know because of coronavirus. Um, but this I think is a bit more. Uh, not surprising, but I just thought for I just thought for some reason that regardless of there not being fans there, I thought that this money would be more linked to sponsorship and uh, you know businesses and that sort of side of things, but ob- obviously not. And it just shows, I think, that fans are just so integral to tennis for you know not just kind of enjoyment and you know the players obviously feed off that energy, but really for its survival and i think this is just uh you know this is an example of that because you know without without fans um you know prize money shoots massively down and i i do wonder whether you know uh, for some players does this you know does this <laughs> this i feel like this does kind of sort of rile them up in terms of you know they're kind of risking all all that's out there to you know go and you know put on a show for for everyone you know sing at home uh and you know, they might be looking at this thinking they're doing it for pittance. Yeah, I mean, I don't normally agree with what John Isner puts on Twitter, but uh, he had some fair points to, to say this week, you know, saying that um, h- how can these tournaments just cut the money by such a vast amount? And and just to clarify, it's 80% cut for the champions, but 60% cut kind of for the total prize money. You know, he was saying that really there needs to be a lot more transparency about the kind of the revenue and the income that these uh, events and tournaments, you know, are getting so that we can actually, you know, truly assess whether they need to cut the prize money by so much or, you know, whether, uh, you know, they're like John is saying, the ATP executives, you know, are they getting a a pay cut? You know, are they having their benefits cut? You know, where is the money actually going? How much are the tournaments actually suffering? Are they just using perhaps the pandemic, I guess, as a, a big excuse to just cut, Cut, cut. I, I don't know. Um, it would be interesting. I, I don't know what the, the rules are actually in terms of how open they need to be. You know, I'm just kind of equating it to like charities. Um, the, you know, they have to publish like their accounts so the general public can go in and see what funds they've got, how many, res- how much re- they've got in reserves, like where their spending is going. You know, it's, it's kind of very um, out there in, in the public domain. I don't know if if tournaments kind of have to to do that but like like you said i would have thought that things like tv rights sponsorship all of that would have covered uh you know enough of the revenue so that they wouldn't need to cut it by such a vast amount um yeah it's it's interesting again this kind of goes back to i think you know the the novak djokovic point of view that you know players need protecting and i think you know there'll be some players kind of looking at this as a as a reason that there needs to be an extra level of, of protection there and there needs to be someone, you know, with the voice of, of the players. And, you know, at the moment in the current structure, it feels like that force should, or that pressure should be coming from the, you know, the ATP player council being like, you know, feeling like, you know, that is a massive drop. That doesn't feel, you know, that doesn't feel right. But if it doesn't come from there, I think that's why, you know, we're seeing things like the, you know the the PTPA, for example, people feel like that has to be, you know, has to have has to happen because there needs to be a level of uh, an added level of protection. That arguably, you know, some people might say that the ATP Player Council isn't giving at the moment. And I think this 
if this kind of continues and we see this again at, at other tournaments and, and and seeing kind of prize money kind of cut dramatically, I think more and more players will be like, who's 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 stepping up here to be like, hey, you know, we're we're risking kind of life and limb really to you know put on a show going around the world with you know a pandemic still going on, going in bubbles and you know making all these sacrifices. That's worth a lot more than you know the current the current deal they've got at the moment. I do think, Joel, that the $1.354 million or what have you that the singles champions got in 2019 was a bit astronomical in the first place. So I do think that if one thing is to come out of the whole pandemic and prize money debacle, I do think obviously it needs to be more fairly distributed. I think, I mean, that's, that sum of money is, is just kind of ridiculous in, in my view. Um, obviously, I know that the winners are probably going to do various good things with said money, but you know, um, and anyway, just talking about vast sums of money as well, um, came out actually that Rafa is not playing Acapulco this year, uh, apparently because the usual appearance fee that he is, he is provided for turning up and playing is is not being met. You know, the tournament have said we can't afford to um, to pay you the usual amount. And so Rafa's said that he's not therefore going to be able to turn up in Acapulco. Um, the staggering thing was, is that the appearance fees are estimated to usually be between half a million dollars and a million dollars. Um, I think Sasha Zverev was getting paid $400,000 to turn up at Acapulco. If he's getting paid that much, I dread to think how much Rafa was getting, probably like a million just for turning up. I mean, that is an astronomical amount of money. Um, and I mean, no wonder tournaments can't afford to, to keep on paying that because that's, you know, a lot, <laughs> a lot of money. Yeah, this is this is coming from uh, Ben Rothenberg's Twitter account. We're not just kind of making up these these numbers. So if you <laughs> want to have a look at kind of the, the details on this, um, you can go there. But uh, yeah, it, 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 there's a lot of chat about, I think, kind of finances and, and costs kind of in this sort of new world. And I think it's going to continue if we're going to see these things happen with, you know, high profile tournaments like Miami, you know, Acapulco not being able to kind of afford... Uh, you know, of four players. I think it's going to be asking, it's going to be asking questions of everyone. It's going to be asking questions of players, whether they can, I guess, you know, reduce their appearance fee. Um, it's going to be asking, it's going to be asking kind of the ATP, whether they can help. I think there's lots of different angles and it's, it's a really kind of, I think, tricky and thorny issue that I think we're almost kind of only surfacing at the moment. And I'm sure it's going to continue, but um, Kim, let's, let's kind of, let's kind of wrap up and, and look at the tournaments for next week we've got four more tournaments we've got two 500 events two 250 events so 500 events we have are in qatar uh in doha for the wta and then we've got the rotterdam open uh for the men and then we've got the leon open for the women which is a 250 and the argentina open which is a 250 for the men the draws are already out so we're going to we're going to end on quickly looking at all the draws so let's start with rotterdam i mean murray's there as a wild card i mean he's probably got the best matchup possible he's got another wild card in in robin hasser but um yeah, that, I mean, there's that for British fans. I mean, Medvedev is the top seed. I think if he wins um, in Rotterdam, he he does become the number two in the world, which is pr- pretty much a pretty big deal because I think it's the first time it will be someone outside Federer, Nadal, Djokovic or Murray to reach number two since Hewitt in 2005. So it could be a very pivotal tournament for him. Yeah, I mean, even Dominic Team hasn't got up to number two yet. And uh, well, he's got Lajovic in the first round, so... 
Well, as a Raf fan, do I want to support Lajovic there? Because, you know, I don't want Rafa to, to go down in the rankings. But yeah, it's a quite a loaded field, actually. I think just going back to Andy Murray, you know, uh, how far is he going to get? If he gets through Robin Harsa, he's probably going to have Andre Rublev in the second round, which will be a really interesting matchup. But I just feel this is a bit above where where Andy's at at the moment. Um, so I think Robin Harsa, a fellow wildcard, is probably the best it was going to get draw-wise. I mean, I'm, I'm quite pleased, actually, that, Botic van der Zandschulp has got a wild card. Obviously, this is his home tournament, so he's he's got you know high expectations from from home from home fans. Uh, if there are fans on, at this event, I, I don't think there are. But um, yeah, looking forward to that one. Doha as well. WGA five hundred for the women. This is a lot more stacked than the Adelaide five hundred was. I have to say, we've got defending champion Sabalenka there. Uh, the top seed is Svitolina. Mm, got the Lazarenka. likes of. Vitova Azarenka, Pliskova, um, Kiki Burton's is back um, after she's been out for ages with an injury. Also, Madison Keys and Anisimova are back. Muguruza's not even seeded. That doesn't. That just. That just feels wrong, Kim. Wow. It just feels okay. wrong. That is. That is quite crazy considering she did so well at the Australian Open. I know. I mean, Muguruza Sabalenka potential second round match that could be quite fun. Uh, Azarenka Kuznetsova uh, in the first round again, really uh, good. Um, I think that's probably me the highlight of. Well, that's probably the, my pick actually from from Doha in in round one. So yeah, again, really interesting draw there. We can see how that uh, fault that kind of turns out. And also, Kim, uh, you'll like this because you know. I know you love doubles. Elena Vezhnina, former doubles number one, um, is is back in the draw. Mm, yeah, she went on maternity leave a few years ago and she's back. So she's got a wild card into the doubles event, uh, playing with Lara Siegmund. And then she is due to play singles next week in Dubai. So, yeah, it's nice to have her back. She's uh, always quite a smiley player on the court. Mm. So, yeah, welcome back, Vezhnina. She, uh, I think she posted a picture on Twitter with her. Fa- I think she, she's out there with her family, and they're all in like matching tracksuits. And I'm not gonna lie, I quite liked their tracksuit look. Um, oh. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, yeah, I'll, I'll be. It'll be curious to see how she kind of gets on. Um, you know, obviously we've seen that enough in, in the past, particularly with, like Peronkova. Um, so we'll see kind of how kind of Vezhnina gets on. Leon, I mean, Alexandrova's the top seed. Bouchard's there on a wild card. Caroline Garcia's the number three seed. Do you feel like this could be like a Montpellier? I mean, there's quite a lot of French players in the draw, particularly in that bottom half. Are you sensing there's going to be a French champion or do you think it's going to come from elsewhere? Well, I'd love Garcia to win, but I think Fiona Ferro would be the more likely candidate. She's uh, down at the bottom of the draw, second seed. I think Alexandra, you know, obviously she was in good form at the start of the season. So, yeah, I think it's quite an open field. Uh, yeah, you can really see the, the depth actually in kind of French women's tennis because they've got the likes of, you know, Cornet, Burrell, Harmony Tan, you know, um, Ocean Dodan. They've got quite a number of players, Mladenovic, et cetera. So, um, yeah, I think that one's fairly open. I've been quite intrigued to see how that one pans out. Um, and then, yeah, last but not least, Joel, we've got uh, the Buenos Aires event in Argentina for the men, which is a 250. So, obviously, Benoit Pair is is still there. He's, he's obviously gone to do the golden swing. Uh, which is, this is just classic golden swing, isn't it? Cordoba, yeah. Buenos Aires. Oh, yeah. Yeah. I love it. Uh, Schwartzman's the top seed. Are we hoping to do better um, this time round? And um, Caruso, one of my one of my faves. <laughs> there, love that. Love seeing his name in the draw. And Ramos Vinola doesn't have an, an Argentinian player in in the first round. Ah. He's got a Danish wild card, which feels a bit random for um, for a tournament in in Buenos Aires. But um, hey ho. 
Holger Vitas Nodskov Rune from Denmark. Yeah, I wasn't going to pronounce his name. I was going to try. I was. I was. I was trying to lead you to say his <laughs> name. You, you took the bait there because yeah, I, I would have. I would have butchered that completely. Well, um, it sort of sounds like he could have some Russian heritage. Nodskov. I don't know. Uh, but <laughs> I've never seen him play before. But um, Serendu- Serendolo is also uh, due to play that one. So to see how he gets on. Uh, but yeah, so lots to talk about, Joel. And we'll be bringing uh, all the results, of course, from these tournaments next week with our usual Sunday catch up. Yes. Yeah, so make sure to subscribe to The Passing Shot to stay up to date on all the goings on in the tennis world on the ATP and WTA tours. Lots of tournaments at the moment, but you can catch up with us at The Passing Shot. So subscribe to us on your podcasting platform of choice, whether that's Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Overcast, Castbox, Stitcher, wherever you listen to your podcast, make sure to subscribe to us. And if you enjoy listening to the show on Apple Podcasts, make sure to leave us a rating and comment. And you can follow us on social media at Passing Shot Pod. We are on Twitter, Instagram and Facebook. So do give us a like, do give us a follow. Tell all your friends about us so they can follow us as well. And if you'd like to get in touch with us via email instead, you can do so PassingShotPod at gmail.com. And as Kim said, we will be back next Sunday for another passing shot catch up. We're going to be catching up on all the events we've literally just previewed um, in a whirlwind <laughs> 10 minutes. Um, and uh, yeah, looking forward to all of the things going on in the tennis world. I think Dubai and I think Miami as well as the end of the month. So I hope you can join us for that catch up next Sunday. Remember, if you've been missing Melbourne, if you want to relive all the action at the Australian Open, you can listen to our round by round catch ups you just scroll down on your podcasting app you'll be able to listen to us um and yeah uh, we will be back next sunday so i hope you can join us then in the meantime i'm getting back to all of this crazy crazy number of tennis events so uh yeah i hope you can join us next sunday and we'll see you again soon Kim, I'm surprised you didn't want to talk about your second favourite player name on the tour, Benjamin Bonzi. He beat Lucas Puy in Montpellier and he only just lost to to Goffin. I mean, he's got to be up there in terms of that, that double B. It's a, it's a good name, isn't it? Yeah, it's also quite alliterative, isn't it? Bonzi. <laughs> I don't know. I mean, I love that. And, and Bottich van der Zanschulp. So I'm, I'm just looking for the <laughs> Bonzi van der Zanschulp matchup now, Joel. <laughs> Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade.